Hello, and welcome to episode 2.12, the Ashes to Ashes edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Laughlin, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. The release of this episode coincides with the Roman Catholic celebration of Ash Wednesday, marking the beginning of the 40-day season of Lent, leading to the celebration of Easter. As winter begins its agonizingly slow retreat, tantalizing tastes of spring begin to appear. The days are noticeably longer, and if you're lucky, you might catch some snowdrop lilies making their appearance. We've been lucky so far in that the winter here has been quite mild. I don't think I've had my snowblower out since 2023 began. I've lived in the region long enough, however, to know that it's too soon to think that there will be no more snow for the season. But we can always hope. At the 1891 Fredonia Opera House, there's only one sure sign of spring. When our box office manager begins wearing her sandals. Not quite yet, she says. Not quite yet. I just hope she hasn't given up sandal wearing for Lent. One thing that can always liven up a winter evening is a little live music, and we have just that coming up. The trio of Aaron Lipp, Chris English, and Rick Robertson, all from the Naples Valley, Rochester area, will be bringing their blend of bluegrass, roots, and old-time acoustic music to the Opera House on Friday, February 24th at 7.30 p.m. I managed to catch up with Aaron Lipp by telephone in the midst of his current tour through Colorado. Joining me all the way from Boulder, Colorado, as he makes his way around the Colorado River, uh, Colorado area on tour is uh, Mr. Aaron Lipp. And Aaron and a couple of his friends are going to be coming to the 1891 Fredonia Opera House uh, on Friday, February 24th, a couple of days from now. Uh, they'll be there at 7.30 p.m. And from what I can gather, if you get to that concert, you're going to be in for uh, quite a wide variety of musical entertainment. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Tom. We're, we're really looking forward to this opera house show when we get back, and uh, it's grateful to be playing such a nice room. Yeah, it's usually musicians usually like it there because it's got you know nice uh, uh, nice uh, acoustics and it's a it's a pretty cozy space. Um, so you're actually kind of uh, a western, not quite a western New York local boy, but. Um, uh, you come from, uh, and I think right now, if I uh, read your information carefully, you're um, living out in uh, Naples, New York. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a beautiful little town. I've been through it uh, any number of times, and it's probably the only place I can think of in the United States where you can get, you know, a great pie. I think only Naples and around our area are the only two places they've ever heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Na- Naples is kind of known for that and the Great Festival, and uh, they're actually quite good, despite what some people might think when they hear the term "great pie." Some people just don't really know what to think, but once they have one, you know, the tartness really goes a long way. Yeah, yep, yeah, it does. I'm a big fan of them. 
So yeah. tell me a little bit about your musical background. Uh, you grew up around music. I guess your your family must have had a lot of music, and somehow you got exposed to uh, all different kinds of sounds. Yeah, my so I've, I've been playing. Started playing piano when I was four. My my parents were musicians, and I always just really loved it, and I was was really interested in it from a young age. And I uh, I got pretty heavily into all types of music when I was a kid, like classical and jazz, and then of course rock and roll. When I was a teenager, discovered Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead, and then uh, through that, kind of found my way into bluegrass. So I've been playing a bunch of different styles of music since I was young. I played in all the bands at school and had like a rock band growing up playing classic rock. Then I joined this band called Giant Panda Gorilla Dub Squad playing Hammond B3 organ and, and clavinet and some lap steel guitar. Been in that band for about seven years. Rochester band playing like roots reggae and Afrobeat music. So really really fun band, uh, really kind of different type of, didn't sound like any of the other bands in this same genre. So we had a, we had a good time. That was a lot of my formative years uh, from like age 16 to 23. I think I was in that band. Guys were much older than me. Got exposed to a lot of great music through them and just, and a lot of, uh, experience being on the road. Uh, after that, I, I toured with this guy, Robert Randolph, the family band, the pedal steel guitar player from New York City area, who's pretty world-renowned at this point. Uh, I was playing organ in that band, too. And I played with him for about a year. We did some pretty heavy touring on a tour bus and, and went to Europe a couple of times and got to meet some great people. And... And then I decided to, I wanted to sort of do my own thing and move back to the country and uh, build a house and start a band and start writing more of my own songs and do my own thing. So I started a couple bands then and got, got pretty heavily into old-time fiddling and, and clawhammer banjo playing and flat-picking guitar, writing songs, um, and learning just all these old fiddle tunes and, and listening and learning a lot of Doc Watson stuff. And I really didn't tour for a while up until recently joining the Sam Grisman Project. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I'm out on tour now. We did a a West Coast tour in, uh, in January last month, and now we're out in Colorado doing like nine shows. But yeah, throughout that, that time I was home, I was, I was in a several different bands, including uh, a band with one of the guys who's in the Sam Grisman Project now, Rick Robertson. He's been a good friend of mine and a long-time musical brother, and uh, he's an amazing singer and songwriter and multi-instrumentalist, and we both kind of switch off on different things, and and we've been friends for probably 12 or 13 years, and reconnected a few years ago and started up this project, Sam, and and Chris English is an amazing drummer, singer, and songwriter from Rochester. A lot of people know Chris English or Chris Hollywood. So, and that's the the Rick and Chris and I are the trio that's coming to the Fredonia Opera House. So it's basically this same band that's out here without Sam on the bass. I see. Uh huh. So so we do we do a 
a handful of originals out here, but a lot of David Grisman music and Jerry Garcia music done our own way with originals, like, mixed in. Um, so we're going to do probably more of an original focus set at uh, Fredonia, probably do acoustic and electric. And we've, uh, since since we've all been living up there in the Finger Lakes, all three of us live up there now, uh, we've been playing quite a bit as a trio. And I spent many years playing solo gigs and, and, and just so many different duos and little side projects that I had up there. But um, now that I'm on the road a lot, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to focus more on playing bigger rooms, for, you know, less often. There's a lot of, uh, I was just playing a lot and working really hard playing breweries and wineries and weddings and all that, but I think it's time to scale that back a little bit and start, uh, you know, focus more on making the music better and playing for, playing bigger rooms. Right, right. Well, I, I noticed it in, in trying to scan and listen to as much of your music as I possibly could that you, you went from, uh, you were in a band called the Cabin Killers uh, a number of years ago, about 2013 for a number of years after that. And they were a little bit more of a hard-driving sound than you currently have now. I think you've got a couple of um, solo albums coming out. Um, one of them is called No Time Too Soon. And if yeah. I'm – yeah, and that's got – that's a, that's kind of way more uh, mellow. There's another one called uh, Blue Darling, I believe, and, and – uh, uh, nothing to lose. So you're, you, since since um, I, I guess kind of you know if I I saw your bio and said you kind of took a step back and spent a lot of time you know rediscovering your own music and these these uh, more recent albums tend to be a little bit more you know more more mellow and um, you know less less more of that electrified hard driving sound you had with the Cabin Killers. Yeah, well the the Cabin Killers was was sort of like a a mix between, I mean, we were kind of like a bluegrass old time band, like with drums. And uh, I played some electric guitar in that band. There's some on the record, but very little live. But it, it definitely was more high energy um, than the most recent record I put out. I mean, I guess I sort of just have been evolving as a person in, in these groups, but uh, just realized that, you know, dynamics are really important. Uh huh. And being an artist sort of really, you know, you can't, you can't appreciate something that is just balls to the wall the whole time unless there's a little bit of a, little bit of a break from it. Just right. like everything in, in life, you gotta have variety and, and uh, you can't have light without the dark, so. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm very, uh, I'm very impressed. I really enjoyed listening to, um, you know, some of these, um, tunes that I've been listening to. Uh, you, you mentioned Doc Watson as one of your influences. Doc Watson and Tony Rice, I would imagine, from the Bluegrass area. And, and, I, and I can hear the similarities in the in the licks being played. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, those are two two of the biggest influences, at least on flat-picking guitar stuff, which we do. We do some of here with the Sam Grisman project now. We do a whole pretty large acoustic portion of our set with we don't plug in we use only microphones we go totally old school which a lot of bands nowadays they don't there's just a lot of um you know, there's a lot of great bands out it's just a different sound you know we're we're not doing the jam grass thing we're you know we're playing some really uh iconic tunes that david grisman wrote and, and a lot of 
versions of of songs that we like to sing, originals and traditionals. But I think that's something that sets it apart from other other bands is that we only do microphones. It's really easy to want to plug your acoustic instrument in and be able to hear it really loud, but then you, you lose all the dynamics and it completely takes away the, the true sound of bluegrass. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I, I kind of tend to uh, uh, agree with that. I was looking at the album um, Lonesome Hillside, which you did with a gentleman by the name of Bobby Henry. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Oh yeah, Bobby. Uh, Bobby's been a huge, huge part of my musical journey. He uh, he's one of five brothers, the Henry brothers, that are semi-famous in the whole Naples, Rochester area. They're in their 50s and 60s, you know, much older than me, but I, I grew up as a kid listening to them play, like, barn dances and, you know, square dances just around the Italy Valley Hills there. And my parents were friends with them, and we would always go to potlucks, and I'd see them play. And I, I finally, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I ended up getting together with a couple of those guys and, and then really started to enjoy playing with Bobby, so we... We played together as a duo for a while and, and sometimes as a trio with his brother Doug on bass. But Bobby and I had a uh, project going for a number of years there and put out that record. It's just a collection of our favorite stuff. But I, I learned a lot from, from Bobby about just playing guitar with him. Uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic musician and uh, particularly, particularly his rockabilly band. Uh, they're, I, I just think they're the best rockabilly band I've ever heard. He's he's great at all styles, but that's that's uh they're they're definitely a band to check out. They're they are still playing. They don't play very often, but they do still play. And uh, Brian Williams is, is the upright bass player. He's a pretty well known Rochester bass guru. So, do you think the three of you are going to um, uh, uh, continue to uh, perform together for a while once you get back, um, you and Rick and uh, Chris? Well, uh, yeah, we are. Um, I mean, the Sam Grisman project, we're, we're touring pretty heavily this year, so we're actually only home for about a week wow. when we play the when we play the Opera House, and we're and we're doing a Southeast tour like DC down to Virginia and Carolinas, Jacksonville, Florida, Charleston, Atlanta. So we're when we're home, usually for like one or two weeks at a time, at least in the next couple of months, we will be playing probably one or two shows as a trio somewhere in the Northeast. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. So we're definitely, yeah, we're definitely going to keep that thing going. Actually, the next time we're playing up there is with the Sam Grisman Project in April. But the yeah, the trio thing in the Fredonia is something we're really looking forward to when we come back home. Kind of like our homecoming, nice homecoming show. Nice, good, good. Well, it's it's nice to it's nice to to uh, be able to have a chance to talk to you and 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 know that you know you're you're going to be settling down in in New York and in the region because you know I, I think the area is, is a pretty nice area for the kind of music you play, bluegrass and old timey music and stuff like that. Apple with the, that Appalachian sound. I mean, I think it fits the region pretty well, but I don't think there are enough bands playing it in the region. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's not enough bands necessarily doing it justice. Um, there's a lot of love for that music in the area, and I think what what we enjoy doing is focusing on on more on the songs. And if they're 
were good songs. So, you know, we try to only choose things to play and sing that we really feel, uh, you know, a song with a good story or something that makes you feel feel some type of deep emotion. And we still pick pick tunes, you know, instrumental tunes here and there um, in between. But I think that's that's important to, to know. That's one of our main our main focuses is really being just critical about our own songwriting, especially and and also the songs that we choose to cover. It's it's gone through a lot of <laughs> filtering over the years. There's a lot of repertoire that has been discarded. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's nice to know that it's it, it's really nice to know that you're you you've got that because I think the show's going to bring to the opera house a lot of uh, uh, originality, a lot of versatility, and uh, it's nice to have a band that's uh, you know. Um, centered locally come to the opera house and strutted stuff so we'll certainly be looking forward to uh to hearing your concert on the 24th aaron yeah we can't wait to check out that venue we've only seen in pictures but we're really we're really looking forward to it and hopefully we get some good friends who want to come share the experience great thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i know it's it's always busy touring so i i really appreciate the opportunity thanks again good luck with the rest of the tour yeah, thank you, Tom. Okay. Talk, talk to you soon. Tickets for this live music concert featuring Aaron Lip, Chris English, and Rick Robertson are on sale now and can be purchased online at www.fredopera.org or by calling the box office at 716-679-1891. Tickets are $13 for adults and $5 for students. The Kathy and Jesse Marion Art Gallery at the Rockefeller Art Center on the SUNY Fredonia campus has a new exhibit opening on Tuesday, February 27th, with an opening reception on Friday, March 3rd, beginning at 6.30 p.m. Entitled Miscommunication, Language and Power in Contemporary Art, the exhibit explores the power of language in a cultural context. I spoke with the curator of the exhibit, Ms. Amy Kong about some of the representative pieces that will be shown in the exhibit. I'm pleased to welcome now to the podcast Miss Amy Kong. Amy is a PhD candidate in art history at SUNY Stony Brook, and uh, she is the curator of the upcoming uh, exhibit at the uh, uh, Jesse and Marion Art Gallery at the Rockefeller Art Center that that will be opening on Tuesday, February 28th. There will be an opening reception on Friday, March the 3rd at 6.30 p.m., and that's going to run through April. So welcome, Amy, to the podcast. So good to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me on. You're welcome. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about the exhibit on the, uh, on the whole um, to try and get a sense of what it is that you have curated here, what's been created. And we might as well start off with the title of uh, Miscommunication and see where we go from there. Yeah, so the title of the exhibition is Miscommunication and Subtitle Language and Power in Contemporary Art. Um, so basically this exhibition, I um, was thinking about the ways that um, language inherently carries um, power and there's um, different kinds of politics and power dynamics that are um, embedded within language and that includes like different um, you know different kinds of languages gesture um, also like dialect 
So um, yeah, this exhibition, um, there's about uh, 15 or so artists that kind of depends on um, it's traveling. So in each iteration, there's a, you know, maybe varying between like seven to 15 artists. Um, and these artists are engaging with things like, um, you know, English language learning programs and how, um, you know, English language dominance is, you know, happening over the world. You know, in East Asia, kids are learning English from like infanthood and um, in the U.S., you know, people are, um, you know, treated as kind of like other if they're not speaking, I guess, like perfectly grammatically correct English. Um, also thinking about, you know, um, the the like loss and decimation of um, indigenous languages um, and um, the ways also that like dialect and kind of manners of speech and gesture affect how, you know, you're perceived in terms of like your education level or, um, you know, your class and things like that. Um, also kind of racial to, you know, people who speak with like black vernacular English um, seen as like, you know, maybe that type of language being unprofessional or something like that. So, yeah, so it's kind of like a, I guess, overview of what the, the conceptually what the exhibition is about. It's a fascinating topic. I'm, I've always been a person who's been, been interested in language as, as a, uh, a means of communication because, you know, I used to, um, when I taught um, acting to students at SUNY Fredonia, I was always trying to get across to them the idea that theater is an art of language and how you speak the words and how you intone them and how you get them across carry, can carry off a lot more meaning than you know, just worrying about what the emotion is or anything like that. You know, language is not infallible. There's so much space between the words that come out of your mouth and what you may or may not mean by using a particular word or phrase or something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the way that you're, you know, you're saying something can also, you know, create a certain, a different kind of um, meaning and how, you know, the person is receiving it, or you could be putting on a certain kind of way of expressing something. Um, like one of the artists, Kim Schoen, she hired this actress to kind of perform this like academic speak talk where she's speaking in a very like, it seems like she's giving this very heady, you know, um, uh, I don't know, lecture and she's using this very like, um, you know, professional gesture, but she's actually just speaking gibberish. And so she's kind of, you know, revealing the ways that like these kinds of ways of, um, you know, language can be also constructed and can, you know, perform a certain kind of um, class or knowledge level. Yes, I, 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 I saw the piece. I didn't hear the language, but I, when I saw it, I said, boy, I would have liked to have been the actor in that. I would have <laughs> would have been a very, yeah. a very, very interesting challenge as an actor to go in there and do that kind of thing. Now, uh, you and I are about to embark on something I find kind of ironic in a sense, just simply because we're going to try and take a look at some of these individual pieces so the audience gets uh, um, some idea of what they're like. But we're going to do that with language. We don't have visual aids. <laughs> So this is an audio podcast. So are you up for the challenge? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So um, I would uh, like to uh, uh, suggest uh, that you take a piece that, that you really like first, and then I'll take a piece, and then we'll see where we go from there. So what, which of the pieces would you like to start off with to sort of describe to the audience that you found uh, particularly interesting? I think one of the works that kind of started me off on this um, you know, conceptualizing this exhibition was the video work by Han. Should, should I just go through and describe what the work is? <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, yeah, give it a shot. Yes, sure. So, so he's a video artist, and he made this um, short video called um, "Follow Me," 
And in the video, he is um, he he recorded um, footage of these babies who are just kind of sitting and like they're they look like they're speaking, um, but they're not actually making any audible noise. But the sound that's playing is a beginning like English language audio tape. So it's like, you know, hello, like nice to meet you. Like and it's like chapter one, like, you know, these sort of things. Right. And oh, so yes. the babies. <laughs> so there's these little like, you know, Asian babies who look like they're speaking this beginning audio tape um, and then cut between shots of, of these um, verbalizing, you know, fake verbalizing the audio tape. There's also footage of um, a like oral procedure. Um, the It's called the frenulotomy. I think some people also have it done, you know, if you're like tongue tied or something like this, but it was a really common procedure. And I, I think it still happens moderately frequently now in East Asia where um, um, you know, parents will have their children have a frenulotomy, you know, surgery um, because the, it's believed that like it'll help loosen their tongue and help them to be able to pronounce kind of like the English pronunciation more, more like fluently and more um, it'll be like easier for them to learn, um, huh. you know, pick up English as a language like their mouth will be like, you know, more, <laughs> I guess, comfortable or something like that. And it, it, it's really like a pseudoscience. It actually, you know, there's not really any evidence that says that that actually, you know, happens. But um, I think that this work was just really fascinating to see that, you know, thinking about the ways that these kids, you know, in East Asia and across the world are learning English as these little babies. And then, you know, not only are they, you know, kind of forced to learn English to try to survive in this like English language dominated, you know, um, global society, but it's even like affecting or, or kind of like being like affected onto their bodies. Like they're, they're even, you know, their physical bodies are being like, um, uh, modified in order to um yeah in order to be able to to participate in this english language society yeah so i had never heard of that procedure before when i when i uh, and when i looked at the piece and uh, kind of saw the description i was you know um amazed i think shocked was a better word that that you know people would actually think that modifying the human oral cavity underneath the tongue would actually help you Absolutely. speak english if you weren't a native english speaker that's uh, the extremes to what some people will go to be able to 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 have that kind of facility. Yeah, absolutely. And and I will just warn people who watch the video that it is a little bit like if you're squeamish, there's a little bit of like you know blood. You can see you're seeing the procedure happen, and it's just it just kind of shows up on the screen. And I feel like I have to close my eyes when it comes up. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Um, so let me let me give you a piece that I saw that I found fascinating. I I it looks. For all intents and purposes, when you're probably about 10 feet from it, like a standard um, woven Native American basket. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really a very uh, 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 beautiful basket, too, when you look at it. Um, but as you upon closer inspection, um, the basket carries um, uh, a ton of uh, cultural weight. Uh, can you describe that piece of, uh, of artwork for me, please? Yeah, absolutely. So that work is um, by an artist named Sham Gosshorn, and she's a, a Cherokee artist, or she was, she passed um, a few years ago. Um, I, I will have to um, preface this by saying that in this iteration at um, the Marion Gallery, unfortunately, this basket will not be able to be traveling and, and will not be able to be shown, um, but it will be at um, a couple of the next stops. So if people, you know, are able to drive around and see other SUNY locations, they could do this work um, in person. Um, would you like me to still describe Yes, oh yes, I still would. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um so it's this beautiful basket woven um 
by this again artist Jan Gosworn, and um, she um, it's woven out of um, pieces of documents that are from the um, Carlisle um, Indian boarding school. And so her work, she's really thinking about the ways that, um, you know, the, the, the colonial violence of um, English and assimilation on indigenous populations in the US. And so we have this really horrible history in the US of um, these Indian boarding schools that were incredibly um, violent and, and they, you know, took indigenous children from their families and forced them to go live in these boarding schools where they could not speak their um, native language, like their, their home, you know, tribal language. And, you know, they would get in a lot of trouble or they would be like, you know, hurt if they if they did try to speak those languages. And so they, these boarding schools were meant to like really whitewash or like kind of Americanize these indigenous children. Um, and through that process, they ended up, you know, a lot of these indigenous languages are really um, at the threat of like, uh, of going extinct. Um, and so in this work, she um, takes uh, copies of documents from the Carlisle Indian Boarding School and weaves them together to create this basket. And then on the front of the basket, there's an uh, individual. Uh, he was a an individual who was kind of taken up as a poster child of the Carlisle Indian Boarding School. Um, and so she takes up, she, she weaves together two photos of him, one, um, prior to boarding school where he's like in his indigenous kind of um, dress and long hair. And then one of the after picture where he, you know, has like the short hair, he's like in Western dress. Um, and she like weaves them together to kind of like bridge together his, um, I guess, sort of uh, disjointed identity that um, he ends up, you know, having through this process. Um, but yeah, the Carlisle Indian boarding school, they like took him up as like this, like, I guess, success story to them of, of um, their successful, you know, assimilation, which in fact is, you know, very violent and a, a really horrible history that we have to contend with in the U.S. Yes, that's what I found so haunting, in fact, about the piece is that when you stand away from it, when you stand a distance from it, it just looks like any other straw woven basket and in and of itself is beautiful. But then you get closer and you see the Carlisle shredded documents woven in and then you really zoom in on that that image of that uh, 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 assimilated Native American and you can see the two sides and it. I don't know it, it, that image. It was I found very, very haunting, and in a lot of ways, Absolutely. kind of you know disturbing as I kind of looked at it. You know, uh, it just with with one image, there was just all of this history of the of the uh, uh, colonization of the American West, shall we say? And it absolutely yeah and i want to tell i want to let my um uh listeners know that they'll be able to see that image if they look at the walkthrough video that'll be posted in the show notes so that image does exist they can get a look at it if they want to um okay what's another image that you found particularly uh, uh appealing to you as you curated this there's just like so many things that are the, the, for me to choose all right i'll i'll pick one more since you you go ahead you, yes it, it's like i think i think I didn't realize this when I started this, but I think it's like asking you to pick who your favorite child is. So I... <laughs> exactly a little bit. <laughs> so maybe like it's easy. To... All the names, and I'm like, which one? Which one? <laughs> so maybe it's easier for me to do that. Um, so the last one I'll pick, and this is because I, I I do have a little bit of a of a fascination with computers and how computer technology actually uh, it gets incorporated into uh, uh, art. Uh, and uh, contemporary artwork. And that's the one um, that's called Museum Manners for Siri. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that the artist is, uh, is uh, pronounced uh, Jisoo Chung. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. 
Ji Su Chung. She's actually um, a dear friend of mine from LA. But um, so Ji Su Chung is a Korean um, national, but based in LA now, and LA based artist. And I, yeah, I love this work, Museum Manners for Siri. It's, um, it's, it's very charming and silly, and it's very much her personality too. If you ever get the chance to meet her or have her um, do a talk, but um, in the work, she's, um, she's, she's dictating to her her phone theory, like uh, basically these kind of museum kind of etiquette rules. And then Siri is attempting to, you know, um, transcribe her dictation. But because, you know, she's speaking in like an accented English, um, English isn't her first language, Siri is like constantly making, you know, mistakes with what she's, you know, saying. It's like reading her saying, she's saying like, take a step back. And then Siri says like, you know, stab in the back or something like that <laughs> and so you can see how um the text is um on the screen you see how like siri is doing it incorrectly and as siri is doing it incorrectly um jisoo chung the artist she is also performing and acting out the ways that siri is misunderstanding her english so it's, it's kind of quite um uh like absurd and it's very um it's really funny to see and just like imagine you know this sort of frustration that she has trying to like communicate with um Siri but also just like seeing and, and you're realizing the ways that the um you know technology itself is biased because it's, it's biased towards a certain kind of you know English pronunciation um and you know it's it's is not really able to um accommodate for you know different ways of speaking English um and so yeah that makes it's um it's very present in um this this kind of work I guess too well, Amy, Amy, it's been delightful to talk to you. It's always delightful to talk for me to be able to talk to young scholars in any field. And, and I wish you luck. And I want to congratulate you on having won the uh, 2020s uh, SUNY Prize for um, uh, Performing Arts Creation and Curation. That's uh, quite a feather in your cap as you go forward. And uh, hopefully we'll be seeing more of your, your work out there, both in the SUNY system and beyond. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was really a delight. Oh, great. It was a light talking to you. Thank you, Amy. Bye-bye. Miscommunication, Language and Power in Contemporary Art will be on exhibit from February 27th until mid-April. Gallery hours and more information on the exhibit can be found by going to the gallery's website at www.fredonia.edu backslash about backslash art hyphen gallery. Here's the arts calendar for the upcoming two weeks. Most of the action is taking place at the SUNY Fredonia School of Music. Here's a list of events. Ethos New Music Group presents the Chamber Ensemble 5x5 on Friday, February 24th at 8 p.m. in the Rausch Recital Hall. Liederabend, Brahms and Beyond, is a faculty recital featuring members of the voice and piano faculty on Saturday, February 25th at 8 p.m. in Rash Recital Hall. Violinist Marcus Placci will be in residence on Sunday, February 26th from 1 to 6 p.m. with a master class and recital in Rash Recital Hall. A Puerto Rico benefit concert will be given on Wednesday, March 1st at 8 p.m. in Rash Recital Hall. The Robert Jordan Piano Festival will take place all day on Friday, March 3rd, in Rausch Recital Hall. The Fredonia Wind Ensemble will perform in King Concert Hall on Saturday, March 4th at 8 p.m. 
Fredonia Oboe Day will take place on Sunday, March 5th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Rausch Recital Hall. The Fredonia Jazz Orchestra will perform on Tuesday, March 7th in Rausch Recital Hall at 8 p.m. And finally, the College Symphony will perform on Wednesday, March 8th in King Concert Hall at 8 p.m. All of these events are free and open to the public. If you have a coming arts event and would like to get it mentioned on the arts calendar, send an email to operahouse at fredopera.org or call the box office at 716-679-1891 with your information. What you just heard for the past ten seconds was silence. Much can be communicated with silence, and the art of mime is designed to communicate with silence. Mime and mime artists get a pretty bad rap in American culture, but in many other cultures, mime is considered to be a high art form, physically precise and demanding. The Department of Theater and Dance will be showcasing the art of mime with their next upcoming Walter Gluer main stage series production of Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mime. The production is under the direction of Dr. Nestor Bravo Goldsmith, who trained in physical theater and mime in his home country of Argentina. I had a chance to speak with him about his training and what he hopes to achieve with this unique production. I'm very, very pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Nestor Bravo Goldsmith. Dr. Goldsmith is an associate professor in the Department of Theater and Dance, where he teaches history of the theater, script analysis, um, theater for social change. He runs the Fredonia Young Company, and uh, he is also the coordinator of the Bachelor of Arts program at SUNY Fredonia. Uh, Nestor, welcome to the podcast. Um, thank you. Thank you for having me in your podcast, Tom. You're welcome. Um, now, of course, um, the reason that uh, I, I wanted to get you on is because you're doing this um, kind of unique show, it seems to me. I haven't been able to gather much information about it. It's entitled Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Mime. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I know it seems to be sort of oriented for... Uh, children. It's a short show. So um, the first thing, though, I want to do is I want to get a little bit of background on you in terms of your approach to why you chose a, to do a, a mime show, because you have a background in that. Yes, yes. I was trained uh, in Argentina for several years um, in corporeal mime and then Comedia del Arte and other uh, physical theater techniques. But um, well, that is part of the, the reason but also because um, I think it's important to um, create uh, works that are oriented for uh, younger audiences yeah, and families. Um, they are the f- future um, uh, spectators or audiences in theater. So this, is a, this project is also one of the objectives to, to form new audiences. And, um, and also because I think that um, uh, physical theater in, in, in general and, and, and mime in particular um, have a lot of pictures that we want to share with an audience. Uh, let's say that um, in, in general, 
we, we can say that, but this is an ancient art. Yes, it, we can trace it back to to um, Greece and, and 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 Rome, but also it was present in ancient theater extensively. And um, so as we uh, prepare this show, we are somehow connected with our heritage as as theater people, and um, and this art is a is a way of. As I said before in, a, in another conversation, so we are harnessing yeah, uh, silence and yeah, articulating silence, and uh, and and also um, um, tapping into a way of communication that uh, transcends uh, uh, cultural boundaries, uh, national boundaries, um, verbal language, also to convey meaning to an audience and. Um, I like to think that uh, I'm on or uh, I'm on the audience that is going to enjoy the show uh, are going to be, for example, individuals with uh, um, hearing, hearing disabilities, for example. They, they, they are going to be able to enjoy from the beginning to the end the whole show. And, and also it, it has uh, educative purposes, of course. We are going to present first um, um, at Fritonia in Bartlett Theatre, but then we are touring and presenting the show in, in an intermediate school for 600 students. And um, so this is a, um, it's a visual uh, spectacle. Yeah? Um, I would say that um, the proper way to Identify the audience who attends this show is a spectator rather than audience. Yeah, spectator has to do with hearing. Uh, a spectator has to do with with uh, seeing. Yeah? and um, this is a visual spectacle, and uh, and it's, it's apt for everybody, and not just a, a youth. We are targeting also adults, individuals. The, the show has different levels of. Uh, um, and the standing, if you will, yes, and so adults in New York can enjoy also and get something from the show uh, in relation to the messages, in relation to the, the style itself, and, and, and so on. And obviously, children are going to enjoy it. This is participative also. We engage the audience in different moments during the performance. Uh, so it's an entertaining show. It's a meaningful show. <laughs> Is a, um, a novelty to some extent because we are used to do uh, verbal theater, yes, and staging more traditional plays. This is a different approach to theater that I think is going to be interesting for the audience too to see. Now, how do you, as someone who practices um, uh, this this kind of theater, uh, uh, physical and mime theater, get over the cultural hump of most Americans thinking about Marcel Marceau and and only that aspect of mime? Um, it has a deeper uh, uh, background and a deeper history than that. But I think on the surface, um, too many Americans um, uh, think of it as things that uh, clowns do for laughs or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And of course, you know, the, the famous pushing against the wall routine yeah. uh, that yeah. they've seen. Um, how do you get over that particular uh, cultural roadblock to tell audiences there's more to it than that? Yes. Yeah, there is a lot of cliches around uh, mime um, and uh, 
the world of clowns also. Um, but let me say that um, I have the, the fortune to to see the work of Marcel Marceau. Yeah. Marcel Marceau was a master of uh, miming, and he um, just say that when he went to Japan, and uh, uh, people who follows uh, no theater, for example, which is a traditional art in Japan, uh, and they saw the work of Marcel Marceau, they uh, clapped yes, and extensively and recognized the quality of uh, his work. He was a poet of a movement, and uh, it, it was so uplifting to, to see the work and inspiring, actually. Um, and he was uh, an individual who was able to uh, devise a show, uh, a pantomime in his head as he was traveling to a country to perform a show. And he was able to perform right away that idea. It's like a writer uh, who has a poem in, in their head and then they write down. Marcel Masso was able to do that in a space yeah, with his body. And uh, so this is a difficult art. It's, uh, it takes a lot of uh, time, a lot of training to develop the skill that you need to, to do it properly, if you will. So I think that um, if um, some member of the audience has some uh, research about the, the work of uh, mime and physical theater, they're going to be surprised yeah? and, um, and, and, and found, find a, a, a display of a physical action that are meaningful, that are uh, novel, that are surprising that could be mind-blowing also, because there are many surprises in, in, in the work, yes. Mind-blowing, um, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a selling point right in and of itself. Um, so uh, uh, the company um, and the cast, now I assume, and, and also a little bit about the process, now I assume that this show was um, uh, created by the ensemble. There was no script that they walked into and were handed. They had to create these stories from uh, right. probably no more than outlines or sketches or something exactly. along those lines. And so talk to me yeah. about the process of how this particular show was developed and and formed into uh, what the audience will come to see. Okay, yes. Um, we uh, took the tradition of Comedia del Arte as an inspiration here so uh, the first step was uh, to create uh, these scenarios that are basically outlined that just describe what happened in a scene. I was responsible of creating the, the eight scenarios that we are staying here. And then I presented that uh, outline, this draft of uh, just a set of instructions and ideas to the company and through improvisation and uh, a devising process, we ended up uh, creating these uh, eight um, pantomimes or myodramas or uh, scenarios that we call those scenarios following the tradition of the Comida del Arte. We have this show that uh, lasts um, between 50 minutes and, and an hour, which is uh, a lot of time for, for this kind of work. Um, and um, I think this is uh, very well done. Yeah, I think that the students um, um, arrived to a point that they were uh, to some extent mastering their bodies yeah, and also the inner life of 
the characters that they are going to portray, uh, not verbally, but um, physically, with, with physical language or body language. And um, and I, I want to, to say that today, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, words are so devalated, de yes, and... Uh, um, sometimes we say things that are not true, <laughs> and uh, that is uh, becoming more and more common. So um, I think that uh, silence and, and no verbal action are uh, pretty honest. Yeah? You cannot lie through physical action. Yes? The, the audience is going to read you pretty well when you're lying. Yes, and so in that sense, <laughs> um, there is a kind of. Uh, Political side of, of of this, yes, and uh, um, in in a good sense, yes, we are promoting um, honesty through uh, a visual language, yes, and uh, but this is just one aspect of it. Well, I think, you know, I think it's, it's an important aspect, though, if I can jump in. So it's so nice to hear you talk about this art form as really having the, the, the body and the physical be the conveyors of the truth of the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And uh, um, I think that especially uh, young audiences are going to appreciate the, the show very much. They are more connected with their bodies and... Uh, uh, as they play <laughs> uh, frequently, and uh, we adults are more separated from that experience. We are more centered in our brain and, and our thoughts, yes, and, and interacted through, I don't know, uh, uh, mass media, yes, uh, through a phone or the computer. Um, so we put on stage the body and, and, and it's uh, utterly visible for the audience. And, Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Now, let me ask you one 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 final question. Um, do, are you actually working um, in the empty space? In other words, um, um, do you have a lot of technical support helping you out, or is it really um, just at the empty space with a few boxes, a few maybe a few objects, and and that and that's really about it? Yeah. Well, I think that the. <laughs> The finest expression, yes, of uh, emptiness is silence. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and so it's a kind of contradiction to create a show uh, that is non-verbal and have a lot of elements on stage. Yes. So the scenic design is pretty simple. The background is uh, uh, black solid and uh, with some element that uh, helped you to just enrich the, the colorful show. But a costume is important here. But basically, the space is empty. We use just four little blocks sometimes and a panel that enter and exit. And the rest is uh, in, uh, the actors are in charge of uh, creating this universe uh, through physical actions. Uh, we uh, literally make uh, visible the invisible. Yes. So there is nothing on, st on, on, on the stage, but uh, we create a, a universe. Yes. Uh, through uh, the the work of the actor and with the contribution of the audience, yes, and uh, because as I said before, we are inviting some of them, especially children, if they are in the room, they are going to be invited to to help us uh, with their imagination to to complete the the story and 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 improvise with us in some moment of the show, 
And that is uh, something that the audience is going to enjoy yeah? in a very safe uh, and, and funny way. Yes. Good. Uh, I'm not aggressive at all. Yeah. In a very gentle way. Uh, we're going to invite some member of the audience to, to help us. Right? To that will be dramatic action. <laughs> that will be fun because I know, uh, uh, again, you know, it's one of those things where if you really want to test yourself as an actor, act in front of children because yeah. You you can't fool children. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know it's the most difficult audience. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> well, Nestor, it was great to see you again, um, yeah, uh, and uh, have this chance to talk to you about this show. Uh, I think this is um, this might be the first show that you're doing that where you have this exposure for the work that you do um, uh, since you've been in the department. So uh, it should be something that audiences should look forward to and seeing. I know. Uh, you know, getting a chance to see some quality physical theater is really difficult these days. So bringing that to Fredonia, uh, I congratulate you for that. I think it's going to be kind of exciting. Thank you. We we just want to reiterate the invitation to families. Yes, parents are going to have a rich experience along with uh, their children. And together, they are going to leave the theater feeling entertained, yes, and rewarded in multiple levels, in aesthetically, intellectually, yes. And emotionally too. So they're really invited. Oh, great, great. We'll make sure we get the word out. Thank you once again, Nestor. Um, and you, uh, good luck with the performance. Eeny, meeny, miny, mime will be presented on Friday and Saturday, March 3rd and 4th at 7 p.m. in the Bartlett Theater at the Rockefeller Arts Center with matinee performances on Saturday, March 4th and Sunday, March 5th, beginning at 2 p.m. Tickets are available through the campus box office at 716-673-3501 or online at www.fredonia.edu backslash tickets. And that's it for this Ashes to Ashes edition of Notes from the Isle Seat. My thanks to Mr. Aaron Lipp, Ms. Amy Kong, and Dr. Nestor Bravo-Goldsmith for being my guests on this episode. Notes from the Isle Seat is a production of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in Fredonia, New York. For more information on any of the Opera House's events, call the box office at 716-679-1891, visit the website at www.fredopera.org, or email at operahouse at fredopera.org. Notes from the Isle Seat is now available wherever you get your podcasts and also on the Opera House YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, please consider following us by clicking the follow button on our homepage at aisleseat.podbean.com and spreading the word through your social media feeds. If you have an arts event you'd like featured on the podcast, why don't you drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org and we'll see about featuring your event. Please try to give us a month's advance notice if possible to facilitate timely scheduling. If you have any suggestions, comments, or criticisms of the podcast, just drop us a line at operahouse at fredopera.org. We'll be glad to receive your feedback. Our next episode will be available on Wednesday, March 8, 2023. I'm Tom Lachlan, and until then, be safe out there, and be kind to one another.